It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under Fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University, which comes out each week, as you probably already know. Hopefully, you listen each week. Anyway, I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Maria Taflaga, political scientist with the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm going very well. I'm, I'm going better than 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 some. Mike Pizzullo, for example, perhaps we'll come to uh, <laughs> to his travails uh, in in a bit. But let's talk about first Daniel Andrews because he's quit, obviously, just suddenly as uh, as Premier of Victoria. Uh, it's not often that you have a state premier um, going that creates such national news, that it's such a significant story. And it has been covered quite broadly uh, in newspapers around the country and led TV news bulletins, radio news bulletins, uh, because Andrews was such an important figure during the pandemic in particular. We got those daily press conferences and the like, but he really, he's hes one of the, there's only a few now, only a couple of, uh, of, of state leaders, one of them's a territory leader. Who were there at the start of the pandemic? So who are still there now? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Andrews was obviously probably the most important one of all of the premiers through that period. Yeah, Andrews, in, in a way, if you think about it, actually sort of became leader of the opposition, such as it was, you know, because he offered, I suppose, a, a different alternative model and was, I suppose, the the most, uh, I want to say, rigorous, I suppose, proponent. Of it due to the vigorous, I think. Yeah, yeah. vigorous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to say zealous because I think like the, the specific circumstances of um, what happened in Victoria kind of required, um, you know, such a sort of um, strong response. Part of it to do with the weather of Melbourne and so on, so so it, and so forth. But also like the the systemic problems in the Victorian health system and the, the and all of those governance issues that, um, about sort of being able to share information and to be able to sort of effectively respond, right, which was a big part of why the, the pandemic also shook out the way uh, it did down there. I wonder, yeah, it's really interesting to think back on this because uh, so much of the pandemic is is about sort of, you know, long periods of time without specific events or um, fears that were around at the time that were eventually assuaged by, by subsequent events, uh, resolved one way or another. And it's easy to forget those early fears. Easy to forget, for example, that when we first knew about this virus, we knew next to nothing about 
about it uh, in in you know we were learning on a sort of a daily basis the population was taken on a on a yeah, journey the, with the, you know there was a predicted 12% death rate for the global population yeah which and is there was terrifying. no and there was no vaccine yeah nor was there any prospect in those early days of a vaccine uh, there was no particularly developed understanding of how it was being transmitted we didn't really know the survival rate we knew of you know, carnage in northern Italy, and we were hearing about it in 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 Manhattan and and in lots of other places. Uh, and yes, yeah, so there was a lot of fear around. And you know, you think back to all that talk about washing your hands and all that that eventually came. Wear around. a mask, but, don't wear a mask. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and even that, everything got everything ended up getting politicised. Perhaps washing your hands less so than wearing a mask. But turns out, wearing your mask was a lot more important than washing your hands. Mm. Um, you know, it was a, basically it was a aerosol transmitted disease, and it took us a long time to understand that. And I think that's really important because in that early stage, when decisions had to be made about what, how governments, how authorities should respond, there was this progressive Labor government sitting there in Victoria, the second largest state. And then there was the there was a, a, a conservative government in power nationally and in New South Wales, and so there was this sort of you know kind of as as you described it, Andrews kind of emerges as the opposition leader because he starts saying, well, I don't care what they're doing in Canberra, exactly. I don't care what they're doing in Sydney, I'm going to protect my population, and so he takes this quite muscular approach. Now there's some pretty Bad decisions were taken in amongst all of that, and we can come to that. But uh, it is fascinating to think about how the political um, uh, proclivities, if I can put it like that, of the different leaders shaped how they responded right from the get-go and also how they were perceived right from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's actually pretty clear that ideolo- ideology and ideological concerns definitely had a huge influencing um, factor on the sort of public policy choices made. In, in some ways, Morrison was the most chameleon-like, actually, sort of borrowing <laughs> borrowing from all sides of the of the aisle, and, and it it cost him in the end with his own with his own party because he spent so much money, and they thought it was a waste, basically. You know, even though it was probably very good for the political fortunes of that government in the medium term. Well, we've certainly been playing yeah. a price for it in terms of high interest rates and inflation or inflation and, and high interest rates to tame that inflation since. It's not the only factor, but has been a significant factor in, in yes, all of that. Yes, yes. You know, we did spend a great deal of money. In, and $300 billion, dollars, right. uh, as, as, as you know, Maynard Keynes said, um, that... Uh, it does rather stimulate it's, an economy. That's right. Yeah, exactly. We are digesting our COVID spending and the war in Ukraine and and all the impacts of, of COVID supply shocks and now the the actions of um, you know OPEC basically mm. um, in, in in constricting fuel prices. So oh, and don't forget climate change yeah. and energy costs, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. you know it is actually a diabolical kind of mix. And I mean, like I think we actually also sort of forget. Andrews hurt his back quite severely and was on leave for a few months, right? Yeah, it was about 12 weeks, I think, and that was uh, March of 21, right? So that was pretty much bang on a year into the, the, you know, the the sort of height of it, Um, it having really kicked off here in Australia in March of 2020. So in March 21, yeah, he forced out some steps. And at that stage, I, I, I wrote about this at the time because it was really fascinating. At that stage, there was this kind of, again, this kind of national shock around Andrews because the whole nation had got to know these premiers and I think none more so 
and Andrews, whose press conferences tended to be more interesting than most because of his, I think, uh, very gifted communication style. I, I think um, I've seen some commentary, negative commentary about him in a range of ways, but I think he was a very, he's probably the best explainer in politics in this current period, like bar none. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. It, it was a tremendous communicator and and I think it goes some way to explaining such high degree of compliance over such a long period of time. Like, yes, the longest uh, lockdowns he, pretty much around the democratic yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, and if it's not the longest, it's the third or the second. Yeah. But, yeah, no, absolutely. Like he, he was, he was an, an, an excellent communicator and I think he also – I think he had a degree of self-confidence in the sense that I suppose he didn't feel the need to pander to perceptions of what the media might require of him. And I suppose he was also in a position of great strength to do that because he is he, he spent all of this time governing in a crisis, yeah, uh, had, a real crisis. Yeah, yeah, he had this kind of moral justification for his actions, like as in, I don't care how unpopular this is or I don't care what Scott Morrison says or Dan Tien or someone else. What I care about is keeping this community safe. And the trouble with that, and it's a very good thing, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the trouble with that is that it's becomes a ju- it can become a justification for just about anything, right? So, yep. so, And that became, in a sense, the flashpoint of his either intense popularity, which continued right up, we should say, right up until the time that he suddenly pulled the pin, Um but also his, his intense, intense unpopularity. unpopularity. You know, right. He's a very polarising figure yeah. in that sense. And and I think politics in Victoria is deeply polarised. And, I mean, like we, we shouldn't forget those actually very scary protests. That, yeah, yeah. You know, um, that occurred. Yeah. The gallows and, and Yeah, and, and mad everything. cookers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, like um, it does seem to be the sort of concentration point, I suppose, of phenomena that we've seen in, in other countries like the convoy movement in, in Canada or – you know, basically the right in the United States. I think it is interesting his his sort of rationale for going, which I think boils down to he always said he would go when he started thinking about it might be time or something or something like that. He said he would he would go the day he started thinking about what life would be like after this job, and he had started thinking about what life would be like. Yeah, and so he knew at that moment. Well, it's arrived, and. Mm. But it, but as as with everything with Andrews, you know, it was about control. He controlled that message right up to the end. His press conference, his doorstop that he did to announce it yesterday, as we record this, was a triumph of kind of clarity, brevity, uh, control. He didn't get emotional from what I could see. Um, he nailed his messages. He looked, as I heard Steve Brack say, um, the former premier who had also done the same thing, left while he was on top. Um, he looked very relieved um, and, at, and at peace with the decision, which is interesting. It's like these jobs are really hard to get and mostly that's why really dominant, strong leaders have to be carried out in a box because they're so yeah, hard to yeah. get that people can't let go of them, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, he's doing them for nine years and, you know, like we, we could – I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to see how the public discourse has changed in, in just five years because five years ago um, – I think we would have an like a near one hundred percent cynical view of his reasons for going. 
Victoria's budget is not in a good state. This government is under pressure. There's lots of inquiries, right? And and we're at the point in the sort of accountability cycle where, uh, you know, decisions made will be examined, which is the natural part of any any kind of process. But I, I think it is kind of interesting that um, – there has been a recognition, I suppose, that, that politics is a bruising business and that politicians are people, even if we only like to admit that for about 35 seconds before going back to thinking of them as, you know, bastards or whatever. And so it will be interesting to see how his legacy, I suppose, is defined um, over the coming years because I think his is a legacy that will be some time in the solidifying because of the complexity around his government. I think that's right. And I think there are, as you say, um, uh, sort of probes and inquiries in relation to integrity matters, uh, issues that are still running. And there have been a few that are still unresolved from that pandemic period. Uh, and they may be influential on uh, the way he's viewed by history. But, but I also think Brax is right when he says that whilst the state's indebtedness is high, its projections are quite good and um, he has spent an enormous amount on infrastructure where there's a lot of sort of, you know, upfront cost and that's what's really battered a lot of the balance sheet along with the pandemic mm, itself yep. and that he has set up, that his idea was that he was setting up the state for the future growth. We know that Melbourne is destined to be a bigger city than Sydney if it's not already you know, any day, any any sort of month yeah, now. Yeah, it's the fastest part of growing part yeah. of Australia right now. So it's a so it's got huge infrastructure demands, and I spend a fair bit of time in Melbourne, and I know this. You know, it's um, it's a um, definitely a challenge, and so it takes governments that think beyond the the current term to actually make some of these decisions, uh, and uh, that may well set the state up for the kinds of growth uh, and to facilitate the kind of lifestyle that. Melbournians and Victorians are looking for. Well, you know, we'll see. It, it's part of the legacy. But I think he'll always be remembered uh, for the for the strong way he handled the pandemic, and that is uh, not a loaded term. I use it in either way. You know, it's it's strong as yeah. in decisive, but was it was. I mean, look at hotel quarantine. That was a debacle, right? The the failure of hotel quarantine, the release of the virus. People died as a result of that. Um, mm. You know, it was, and and that's never in my mind ever really been. I mean, there was an inquiry, but it seemed to me to be. Though pretty... to be fair, hotel quarantine seemed to be a problem wherever it was undertaken. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I, think, I think there were problems in in, in New South Wales. There were again, problems like... with it, but this had to do with who was in charge of it and who was. Making... Yes, that's right. The security guards yeah. and the private contracting. Yeah. Yes, yes. Was, which kind of goes to some of the governance issues, I guess, at play. Yeah, and uh, let's know. let's just be clear about that. That was hopeless. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and it was hopeless in the sense it was it was like a function of of sort of neoliberalism in you know government decision making. Ultimately, one of the um, most convincing answers about it was these things happened that that is private security guards, bounces and so forth, mm. uh, because no one had thought to ask the question. So so, yes, so right, normal was right. it to yeah. outsource yeah, exactly. these things. But this was a public health crisis well, the, the bigger, with, a, with, a, with a, you know, a, exactly. an absolutely deadly pathogen on the loose. The wider, I guess, implications is is actually, you know, people have been sort of complaining or, or sort of talking about the sort of, I suppose, erosion of the Victorian public health sector, which is often cheated home to Jeff Kennett. But, I mean, wasn't Jeff Kennett voted out of office in like 1999? 
and it's pretty much been Labor by four years since then. So, so actually, the state of government in Victoria is Labor's doing. It's you know, really good that's or re- bad. That's right? really fascinating. Yeah. I noticed Stephen Main uh, said that um, that uh, Dan Andrews is the most consequential of all the Victorian premiers, and then he, and I think Stephen Main actually worked for for Jeff Kennett. Oh yeah, okay. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I think he did. And and he said now he then predicted that Kennett would probably, you know, challenge that view. Oh, and, so, and he sort of yeah, and he said so. He said you know, but and he then went on to say, but you know, Kennett was a slash and burn merchant who you know certainly had big consequences for the state. And then and then Andrews comes along and he's like a, a builder. But of course there are there are downsides of both of those things, and we've been talking about it the the huge debt. But the debt, as Brax says, is not as Anywhere near as big as it was under under Henry Bolte, I think. Um, you know, the, oh, the premier go. going way back. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, from the 60s, so they yeah. end up with um, a debt of something in the order of forty percent of state GDP. So th- this debt is less than half that, I think. Well, I mean, look, if you actually look historically, there's actually been very few truly small L. Uh, sorry, like large L slash and burn liberal governments. I mean, you know, ultimately they do like spending our money. They just spend it on different stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk about some other delightful things. Hooray! (laughs) When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, I wasn't—I was going to move on to another topic, but I just want to stick with uh, Daniel Andrews for a minute because one other thing that occurred to me—you know—occurred to me at the time and occurs to me now, um, thinking about the pandemic and about how the state governments handled it and so forth, was that it gave politicians. You remember how Howard, John Howard, you know, sort of used to talk. It was said at the time over the gallery's head by going to talkback radio. Um, yep. Subsequent prime ministers have done it with FM radio a bit more, and 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 of course social media has allowed them to do that. What Andrews did through that pandemic, what all the premiers did really with their daily press conferences, but as I say, Andrews's were the most sort of compelling. They were kind of like a witty and willing theatre at times, you know, as people tried the the gotcha, and he was every bit up to were uh, batting it back at uh, at journalists. They often came off worse for wear. But what he did was that he sort of started a relationship with people in their lounge rooms. It's like he realised, I'm talking directly to the voters here for sustained periods and I'm doing it every day. And it did, it gave, one gave the sort of impression of a one-person government almost. I mean, there was the uh, the chief health officer and the health minister. Yes. and, and he also and a, became a minor celebrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, and sex symbol, I think, at one stage. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't vouch for that. Um, 
But yeah, what did you think about that? You know, just the the way that Andrews was was able to sort of develop this rapport, and it's very much part of the support that he has. So you know, there's aspects about it that really remind me of, um, I guess, the performative skills of of politicians from like the pre television era, where you know, essentially politicians would often do public meetings or, or, you know, literally stand on a soapbox and talk to people and um, the crowd would would, uh, hurl witty asides and sometimes insults and Mm. the politician was expected to be quite deft on on their feet, right? And there's lots of great stories from, I suppose, like the sort of first 50 years of of Australian history of of funny asides and and retorts and exchanges, right? Yeah, Menzies was known for a few of them, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. Or George Reid is another one that comes to mind um, straight away. Um, I, I, I remember one that was attributed to Menzies where someone was sort of yelling out, you know, going on, yeah, tell us all you know, Bob, tell us all you know. And apparently yeah. Menzies stopped and he said, I shall and I shall tell them all you know as well and it won't take me any longer. Exactly, exactly, yes. Yeah. So things like that, you know. And, and of course, Dan Andrews wasn't exactly um, sort of, I suppose, engaging in daily banter, but that point you made about, um, I suppose, not being cowed by the media and often doing quite well in what is an asymmetric contest, one person against like 30. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that that is quite impressive. And I suppose, as you sort of say, like these press conferences was this sort of opportunity that politicians have actually been searching for since the dawn of time. Yeah, yeah. Which How is, to speak to everyone that's direct. Right, yeah. exactly. This wow. sort of eyeballs on the screen. And I suppose it... It's and they of, literally were at yeah, home because they, exactly. they were told There's to be. There's nowhere else to go and and this is where you're getting really important mm. information, mm. Um, you know, and I suppose it had a kind of concentrating um, effect. So, you know, it's easier for politicians, I suppose, to talk to segments of people directly, but, you know, we haven't really had – I suppose that was what was interesting about the pandemic. We haven't had, I suppose, uh, such a sort of coherent national conversation for a long time. These press conferences were part of that. Mm. And um, because of the fragmentation in the in the media, it, in some ways it is actually a bit more like the 19th century where you've got, you know, yellow journalism, like that's just a fancy way of saying, like, bullshit on a page. Yeah. Um, and, you know, more reputable There's newspapers. There's William Randolph Hearst papers yeah, and so Yeah, you know, like people basically just sort of, it's a sort of Wild West and there being lots of newspapers and lots of ways of, of yeah. obtaining information and your family being important conduits information and, and, and all of that. Mm. So, yeah, that's a good point. And it was fascinating to watch also just quickly uh, the way journalists responded to that. I think uh, not always in positive ways. Journalists realised because we saw, uh, well, voters, you know, ordinary citizens got to see press conferences, right? The press conferences mostly were done so that grabs could be used for the evening news. Um, that's obviously changed as we got for, gone into rolling news services and so forth. Yeah, but but most essentially, people don't watch those. Most people yeah. don't, right? Yeah. So, uh, and and plus, they even them they tend to, they tended to be things where you often couldn't hear the journalist asking the question because the journo. The, the journos themselves weren't mic'd up. But what we had with those daily ones was reverse camera shots and reverse miking so that you could hear the question, you could see the journalists. Some journalists, I think, succumbed to the, you know, the sort of lure of celebrity and, you know, they wanted to land that gotcha question. And Andrews was probably better at most. I remember a very, very grumpy 
uh, Gladys Berejiklian a few times in, in, in New South Wales where she was p- telling people to stand back, give her more space and so forth. Um, I'm not saying Andrew didn't get grumpy, but he, he seemed to turn that to that theatre to his advantage. Yeah, he seemed to be able to sort of sustain that, that pressure um, um, a bit better. I mean, in some ways I think that was a sort of interesting exercise in, I suppose, the media having its own version of question time, i.e. a bit that people see probably not actually to the benefit of people, what people might think about the actual institution and its job. Yeah, um, some of the analysis got a bit unsophisticated, I think. So yeah. people who were who were pro-Dan, as they would have called yeah. it, resented any question to him that seemed like it was probing. But that yeah. is an, an entirely important and appropriate thing for journalists to be doing, to be probing the Premier on these things. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think, I think, I think we can't shy away from the fact that some of the things that happened were the result of uh, the fact that the government literally imprisoned people in their houses for nearly a year cumulatively. Mm. Mm. You know, taped off, taped off, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, you know. Uh, I mean, playgrounds and this I sort mean, of thing. I mean, Dan Andrews literally did create internally displaced people in our country. Like, do you remember people were camped on the border for six? weeks, um, I think over the 2020, 2021 Christmas period. Like that is insane. Like, you know, let's not forget the time when we stopped our own citizens returning. Um, yeah, that wasn't his fault though. No, that wasn't his fault. But, you know, like when you when you tell these things to foreigners, it's the kind of thing that just blows people's minds. I think what it is really fascinating is that we still don't seem to really make very much of that. No. And I just think that is... Well, the most success- that is interesting. That's interesting. It's also interesting that the most successful of those premiers at closing things off was Mark McGowan in WA, who's, who's had a big desert. That a, certainly helped. Yeah, that's true. But the approval rating went through the roof. Yes, mind exactly. you, that was on the back of the place being t- entirely sealed and otherwise yes. life going on as normal. And and definitely more, um, I suppose, extreme if we're going to use that kind of language than 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 Dan Andrews. It's just that it was the cost of implementing. McGowan's policies on the actual population was lower because the risks and the actual threat actually um, playing out in WA was just never reached the you know, same. You know, the WA magnitude. economy actually it actually got bigger. I think yeah, because right. because a lot of money that was would normally be spent by West Australians travelling east for their holidays and for other things was being spent. At home, because they couldn't go. travel, right? So, so basically, a mercantilist system that was really working for WA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, and of course, yeah. they were still doing well out of royalties and 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 you know, yeah, from well, resources right. and everything right. else. So yeah, it was, and 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 McGowan's gone. That only leaves Mark. Uh, only leaves um. That was Mark McGowan. That only leaves Andrew Barr in the ACT and Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland, and she's under a lot of pressure. There's been stories over recent weeks about her stepping down. The pressure on her to step down. She's remaining defined at this stage but um you have to wonder about you know whether whether this will have emboldened those who wanted to go or perhaps yeah. even tripped something in her mind that perhaps she ought to uh, you know well, control the terms of her own departure well covid is i suppose like um I guess each year of the pandemic was probably worth three normal years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like uh, your age quick is sort of dog years or something. T- something yeah. like that, right, yeah. you know, just because of the sheer well, the the sheer seriousness of it. I mean, I don't want to get into kind of facile comparisons. Like, well, was it worse than like World War Two? Like, it's. I think these are kind of silly kind of comparators, but they're definitely in the same bucket. Mm. You know, like COVID was clearly an order of magnitude more complex than something like the GFC because it had economic components, social components, and and biomedical 
dimensions, mm. not to mention the foreign policy implications. Yeah, right? and, like, and and it was and it was open ended. We didn't know where it was going to go for a long time. Uh, and yeah. of course, it turned out not to be a race, which was a great relief to a lot of us. Um, uh, there, there was a lot of mistakes made, and uh, this has uh, been a—it's been a sort of slightly unpleasant memory lane, hasn't it? It, it yeah. has, but it, it makes sense to be in this memory lane, not yeah. just because of Daniel Andrews, but because the Albanese government has finally announced this inquiry, and it's not exactly. a royal commission, and it's, and it's hived off. Many important decisions. Oh, I guess we haven't even talked about school closures and the impact on young people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, and 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 the most most important, most consequential decisions were made by state governments, and this inquiry has sort of judiciously avoided, even though it's yes. not actually a judicial inquiry, has avoided uh, those unilateral state decisions. So that's interesting. Let's let's move to another um, another topic which is of great interest here in Canberra which is the um, the communications of the uh, head of the Home Affairs Department often said to be the most powerful bureaucrat in the nation if it isn't the the head of prime minister and cabinet uh, this being Pizzolo, Mike Pizzolo, the head of as I say Home Affairs Department which is now a mega department and we now know as a result of a whole lot of uh, encrypted messages that have been made public that he um, was conducting a pretty interesting sort of dialogue with a, a senior Liberal Party operative and yes one perhaps not quite compatible with the with the, uh, the our sort of traditional notions of a Westminster Mandarin yes yes it, it, they they seem to lack the neutrality that we would normally expect yes are yes. we naive about that though look I think in on one level yes but I th- I think there's a nice sort of distinction that I quite like in in the literature mm. which sort of likes to think of things as all political and apolitical so you know the apolitical bureaucrat is someone who really isn't involved in politics at all and, a, and an all political uh, bureaucrat is someone who is sensitive to political realities and is able to maintain, I suppose, the, the their role as a keeper of continuity, advice, but cognizant of, I suppose, the political realities. So they're not going to sort of suggest, I guess, the what they think might be the best policy solution, but they'll they'll suggest perhaps the best one that was most likely to sort of fit with the political reality of the time and like robo debt, for example. Well yeah, well yeah, so 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 for example, like, you know, look, bureaucrats are there to serve the government of the day. And the problem with politicization is not that bureaucrats don't take into politics into account. Really good and effective uh, bureaucrats do. They Mm. understand the the sort of political pressures that a minister is under, but they say no when it's illegal at the most basic level. Like right? with robo debt, yes. precisely. Or they say no and it's a bad idea because we've tried that before and it didn't yeah. work. Or, yeah. or, f- or or for whatever. Or they sort and of Pizzullo, say. And Pizzullo, to his credit, does have uh, a record of having said yes. no to certain things that would have been illegal or uh, unethical. Yes, and and there's certainly um, some behaviours which. I'm sure other bureaucrats around like empire building, for example, like trying to accrue power in, in, in a bureaucracy, like that's, um, that's a, that is a well-documented phenomenon, mm. right, you know. Yes, um, Minister is uh, based it, on indeed, a lot of this and, and, we, and we, you know, and the, as you say, there, there, are, there are those, there, if you divide the sort of apolitical and the all-political, exactly. the all-political tend to be the ones more senior. 
Yes, You want to stay political, you know, you can do that, but you do need to understand the system within which you are working and the forces that are at play within that system and and, and how that will shape policy and so forth. That's right. And there there are many things that have emerged in these text messages that, um, you know, I just think um, are hard to view in a in a in a more neutral light, I suppose. Is oh yeah, maybe I, 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 yes. Know. I don't want. I don't. Yeah, I don't without, want to sort of suggest yeah. that these these are normal for other bureaucrats. No, no, they're not. That's they're what, not, that's you know. what makes these interesting. They are yeah, very, very exactly. political, and that, and they're sort of overtly so. And it was. I don't think it's all that surprising that some senior bureaucrats. I think if we knew the communications of other senior bureaucrats, we'd probably find some other examples of of, of senior bureaucrats saying to their ministers. You know, such and such is on the on the on the make here, and they're going to try and take your portfolio, or um, you know, they may have views about this or that uh, other department or policy coming from AGs instead of uh, from another department or whatever. Um, but this it, is an it, order it, of magnitude exactly. different. This is a much more salient intervention, and, and repeated. From, from the looks yeah. of it, right? And I, I think that's the point there. So I, I sort of I sort of try to emphasize two points. It's like, yeah, you know, you asked me if we are being a bit naive about this. And I think sometimes we probably are a little bit um, naive about, I suppose, the slippage in a system like the Westminster system, which at the end of the day is actually really based on conventions. Mm, mm. And that is actually why the, the things like public sector values and the sort of norms and the reinforcement and reproduction of these norms as, as being um, uh, essentially there to serve the Australian public through the government as opposed to the government only is really important, but that actually requires a great deal from from public servants. And if if that whole system isn't self reinforcing um, a set of values and norms, and that's constantly being modelled, and politicians aren't really putting the screws on that, right? And I think I think we have seen several examples where that pressure coming from political elites is. Um, you know, I don't think helpful, I suppose, would be the, the, the mm. neutral way to say it. And there are certainly there are certainly things in the Pizzullo messengers that are that are sort of kind of more benign or more, I suppose, sort of um, part of the sort of what you might expect. Yeah, that's sort of push and pull or, or whatever, in, yeah. Indeed, um, part of a robust dialogue. And then there are some things that are, you know, clearly um, – requiring investigation at the well, very let's, least. Well, let's be clear. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, saying we need a right-winger in this portfolio, running down uh, possible cabinet ministers. Yes, quite clearly um, on the other side of that line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, insisting that the then head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet was not up to the job and was insecure. And by the way, if should the Prime Minister, with whom need I know finisher. you're close, need a finisher to, uh, to you know, I'd, I, I've never coveted the job, but I'll just, uh, I'd be, I'd, of course, I'd respond to that call. I mean, there was clear coat trailing going on. And and, um, and, I, and it was clearly a bit two-way, right? Like they're both helping, like uh, there was that sort of request to give some advice to the then Prime Minister around retaining someone is an, in an acting role in mm. order that they could attend a specific meeting, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so it's definitely um, it's definitely not the waddle of Wen- Westminster that we would expect no, in a no, textbook. No, that's yeah. right. Now, look, we've only got a few minutes left, but let's just have a quick quick sort of uh, check-in on, on the health of the voice as far as we can determine it, which is not good. Um, no. Uh, if you are a uh, yes voter and if you listen to this podcast, there's a reasonably good chance you are um, because, you know, the polls 
are fairly consistent, and that's the thing I guess that's most worrying. It's not just that the the yes vote support for the the, the change has has slumped, but this is fairly consistent across just about every survey, and so it's in the somewhere you know mid to low forty range. Some polls have it even lower than that, um, and you know it started out last year support for this idea was in the mid-60 range. Yeah, which is the same level of support that gay marriage ultimately achieved. Yeah, 62%, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we know about the double hurdle, you know, the requirement for a majority of votes nationally and also a majority in four of the states, four of the six states. Uh, that's looking very hard. I wonder, do you, I mean, I've, you know, we, we all need to be, I guess, mindful of um not assuming the result before it happens, but I've been frustrated watching some elements of the campaign. I thought the government let, allowed the choice, the, the, the essentially allowed the proposition to be defined by the no case really for months without really doing much. Or let, let me put it more broadly, the yes case, the yes advocates, which included the government and others, seemed to just have this assumption, working assumption that they were... You know they were in a strong position from the beginning, and it's been eroded. It's been it's been it's it's been cut from underneath by all kinds of wild and wacky, you know, untruths and exaggerations and elaborations and associations. You know, just as I've described it somewhere, it's like a handful of gravel. You know, it it will hit something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the, the no case has been. Um, very successful in in doing effectively two things, um, sort of saying, well, if you don't know, vote no, and then providing so much confusing noise mm. that it increases the probability that the average citizen who is um, less inclined to really engage with this question will be confused and not know. You and know. if you're confused, your tendency is to go with the status quo, Which right? requires little effort mm. and, and is low risk from that person's standpoint. I mean, I think one of the, the sort of frustrating, I suppose, dimensions of the the yes campaign is, and I don't know, maybe this is just a very political scientist thing to sort of say, but I just feel like the debate around the voice has not really been future focused enough if that makes sense like we sort of touched on this last week it actually seems like there there are there are many reasons to to vote yes just as there may be many reasons to to vote no though i haven't really thought through every single one on the no side but there yeah you know um there there are many reasons to vote yes and a lot of the ones that have been really put forward are sort of more symbolic based arguments around completing the national project, um, coming to terms with Australia's history and, um, you know, uh, righting a wrong and that kind of stuff. And I, I think one of the, the issues around that is it's very backward looking. And I think it also takes us and really kind of plays into the nose hands, which is just sort of reheated all of this stuff from the 90s. Mm. And I think plays to a, a, a cohort of people who have actually heard all of this stuff before 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And and it, it reinforces that frame, like oh the the white elites in Canberra are lecturing me again, and I'm just going to shut 
down. Mm. And I think what is actually kind of important about the voice, and it's not like it hasn't been discussed, but it's often only just discussed as an advisory body. But actually the word is representations and, and the voice has sort of three dimensions if you think about it from an analytical perspective. One is advice, right? That makes sense. And I think we kind of understand um, what that is. The, the, the other side of that relates to accountability and, and that is because it's actually able to make representations. So it can offer advice, raise issues, be educative, but it can also offer a sustained critique, right, either of government or from the case, the perspective of conservative no voters, indigenous organisations that are spending my money. And the third pillar of it, which is the bit where, where it's embedded in the constitution, giving it uh, that protection of the constitution, is consistency. And that is actually the multiplier effect that we need for the advice and the accountability mechanism to work well because we have had advisory bodies and we have had accountability functions, but they have never been permanent and they have never been embedded. They've never been elevated to that status of permanence. Precisely. And and giving it that protection in the constitution does a couple of things, right? Like like one, it is um, just simply giving it security and consistency, but it also gives it a great deal of legitimacy because most of these advisory bodies have actually just been white elites in governments selecting their advisory their advisors and so it doesn't have the same degree of mm. legitimacy as representatives from a local community filtering up information right raising issues giving advice but also pointing out major kind of problems and offering a sustained critique whether that is how the federal government is choosing to allocate funds or what what federal departments or are doing or uh, what aboriginal organizations funded by the federal government uh, are doing on on the ground you know yeah. and the, the the final thing about effectively about consistency is that it allows for what we would call institutionalization. And if if an institution such as a voice is successful and seen to, to fulfill its function of, of representation and to and is seen to be given results, then it is actually for those progressive no voters out there, actually far more likely to accrue more powers and far more likely to be persuasive and far more likely to create the discourses that progressive no voters actually want to see, right, rather than what is currently a very modest and definitely conservative, absolutely within parliamentary legitimacy frame. It will never expand beyond parliamentary legitimacy because literally it says the parliament's in charge and yes su- what, that's what the amendment would yeah, say yeah and and for like those who are worried that it will like you know grow out of control and like the UN will take over the Australian government well the only way that's going to happen is if the Australian parliament is down and right and cool with re- with reforming the constitution in many different ways to yeah. allow the UN to run our government yeah yeah precisely it it nonetheless it has been um you know a, an unedifying process watching this kind of get eroded by a lot of as you say noise and and dust and irrelevancies and fears that have been dredged up of of land being taken i mean Noel Pearson makes the point that not 1 inch of australian land was lost to anyone from Wick or Marbo, those decisions. He said they got the balance right and this is uh, the a perfect balance here in the Constitution, balancing the British common law tradition and our parliamentary um, system that has arrived from, from England and, 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 and therefore the constitutionality of that, balancing that with 65 millennia of, of prior occupation yeah. and doing so in a way that, that is 
that is a perfect accommodation of those two things. And I think he makes a very, a very good point. It is a very generous offer. It is. And he also makes the point, going to the, uh, the, the other element of your argument there about the practical side of it, you know, he, he uses the example of rheumatoid heart disease, um, which he says is still uh, a problem in Cape York. Uh, and uh, he, he said this at the press club, the member, the federal member, has been there for 27 years, I think. And this two, two people, young people mostly, people in their 20s or 30s, sometimes younger, are dying from rheumatoid heart disease, two a week. Exactly. And the, and the, and the member had never in that time raised it in the federal parliament. I mean, if, if, if you know, can you think of a more graphic well, example of, of, of issues that are effectively marginalised, sidelined? Exactly, exactly. And, and, I, and I think it actually makes – there's an, actually another really important point because one of the arguments you hear is that, um, oh, well, there are lots of Indigenous people elected to parliament through parties – but you know, we were just talking about whether or not we were being naive, and 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 I mean, to be to be blunt, they are elected on a party label. Party discipline is an overwhelming force in our mm. politics. Yeah. that is actually why. And to represent a geographical area, usually right. as well. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And we actually see this as a, a you know, it's not just Indigenous Australians uh, who were in Parliament who faced the sort of barrier of having to navigate representing their um, people and you know, essentially operating within a political party you know it's it's actually any minority faces this dilemma and it is reflected in the way that policy change for minority groups is ground out over usually a decade mm. and that's just the sort of reality of it like to give you another example of how a voice might really make a difference so in uh, Megan Davis was part of a review of the New South Wales child protection system and 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 one of the things they sort of found which was really shocking was a, a non-trivial number of cases in which simply the wrong paperwork is filed about a different child and a different family in court which then authorizes a removal of a child from a family and um and the reality of having to engage the bureaucracy in a battle to win back your kid when you are from a lower social capital community yeah. is overwhelming. And yeah. so only a few people are going to be able to sustain the resources required. And the way a lot of these cases have eventually come to light is via the media, which is not a consistent um, uh, mechanism. accountability yeah. mechanism, mm. but, but you know, a, a set of representatives that can kind of channel that kind of um, accountability concerns upwards has a far better chance of um, not only addressing individual terrible decisions, but also being able to not only push for systemic changes, but to actually question governments on their ability to carry them through. We love royal commissions in this country, but actually the changes that come from them are in the implementation phase. They are ground out over the next five years. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know? Yes, absolutely. Yes, Noel Pearson described the change at the press club as as uh, modest but profound, uh, and I think that's a, that's a really good description of it. And yet, it's also sort of encapsulates part of the problem. It's very difficult to explain that. He says that it's modest, and but it will get better results in the way that you were just talking about. And he says, listening, it isn't everything, but it's a precondition for any success. And I think that's very likely to be true as well. So. 
There's um, a lot of evidence for it. I think if a lot more people could listen to his address at the press club, uh, and perhaps we'll be talking to him soon on Democracy Sausage, uh, we'll hope that comes about. Um, but if, if people could uh, look at that address uh, at the National Press Club, have a listen to what he had to say, how he responded to the questions, I think it was very, very persuasive, and I just wish more people would take the time to do that. Um, speaking of time, we're out of it. Uh, thanks, Maria. Thanks, Mark. Great to chat. As um, always. And uh, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. As uh, I've told you before, no doubt uh, you can get in touch with us uh, on our email address, democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Until next week, it's bye from us. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.